Hello, and I am David Isaacson, and this is the Writing History Podcast. Writing History is a podcast about the writers of ancient history and what they're trying to do with their writing, what you do when you're writing history, uh, what may have prompted them to record these events, and the kind of implicit argument they're making to their audiences about their past, present, and future. Today I'm joined by Dr. Hivik, who is Professor of History at University of Southeastern Norway, and uh, we are going to be discussing Heimskringla, written by Snorre Sturluson around uh, 1230 AD or CE, whichever way you want to uh, categorize that. Heimskringla means uh, the circle of the world, or some people have said the orb of the world. And uh, it is a mixture of legend and history, chronicling the ancestry and history of the kings of Norway. It's a fascinating narrative with a lot of suspense and action, which makes for good reading. Um, but uh, why did he write this volume and what argument was he making um, making with it? I uh, have this uh, intellectual curiosities that I sometimes get um, seized by. And uh, this year I've uh, been just crazy about reading ancient history. And uh, so I've invited certain people on uh, this uh, series of podcasts to uh, join me in exploring um, these uh, these writings, these ancient writings. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me here, David. I uh, I really appreciate that, and it's uh, it's a very interesting topic, also. Even though this is not my expertise, expertise I have to say, but uh, I'm here as the curious professor. Then I guess. <laughs> uh, but of course, of curiosity. also the history. <laughs> huh? A professor of curiosity. A professor of curiosity, exactly. That's a good. Uh, that's a good way of saying it, actually. Okay, but can you first tell us just a few things about Heimskringla and Snow Sturluson? Maybe start with Snow Sturluson. Who was he? Yeah, so Snow Sturluson was a historian um, that was born um, in eleven. What's I believe eleven seventy nine? The years come here, but uh, in uh, in Iceland, and during that time, Iceland was. Um, would you call a, a quasi-democratic, uh, it had uh, self-government, but no one really governing over it. Um, and they were had this alt thing where people were, things were decided. And he was uh, elected to become speaker of that, I believe, twice. He grew up with, uh, uh, was raised by an historian and was uh, in the community with many historians and was a very cultured pe- person. He was known well for his... Uh, for his uh, writings and his poetry, or his uh, writing of poetry. Uh, I, I have to say, i actually been to the place where he lived. Really? It's yes, Did it's I fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so, what is it called? Snorrestoga or something like that? I yeah, it's it's like a cultural, cultural center yeah. or something like that. Yeah. The cultural center, yeah. It's a fascinating place, and as Iceland in itself is fascinating. This is a very fascinating place, and you feel, you feel the presence of history there, you can say. Wow. Uh, anyway, That's exciting. Uh, so so Snorstulason he belonged basically to the to the elite of this society, and he has had this great interest for history. Um, as for, as, uh, it's not hundred percent sure, as far as I know, that he actually is the writer behind uh, Hemskingla, but we think he is kind mm-hmm. of exactly. Um, and so uh, what is Hemskingla then? Well, so I, I would also add that uh, about. Uh, Ten years after he wrote this, uh, a little over ten years after he uh, is allegedly wrote Heimskringla, um, he was uh, assassinated, uh, most likely by servants uh, of the Norwegian king, 
um, because uh, he returned from Norway without uh, a permission of the king um, and uh, was seen as uh, an, a, a hindrance to Norway being uh, becoming uh, or Iceland becoming a part of the uh, Norwegian uh, kingdom at that time. Exactly. So uh, uh, quite a controversial political figure also. And if you go to Reichholt, Sosnovostoga, you can, they will guide you and follow. There is where they uh, caught him, and he was running away, in think it was into the sauna or something, I think it is. Yeah, <laughs> and then it's like, do, do not, do not strike, strike, do not strike. Or that that yeah. was the last words that he said. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's very uh, typical, by the way, yeah. for, for Nordic history, like you always have to record a person's last words, even if it's your enemy. For some Why? reason, they, yeah, because uh, because some for some reason the um, uh, the last words that a person says is part of becomes part of their history, and so they often have these uh, last comments that are uh, that are uh, uh, that may be just uh, just uh, uh, not you know fictional, not actually true, but uh, there there's a person who gets an arrow. Uh, in his uh, eye, and he said, that was very close to my other eye. <laughs> 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 or, or someone who pulls an arrow out of his, uh, after the Battle of Stiklistan, pulls an arrow out of his heart um, and sees uh, white pieces around his heart, a lot of fat around his heart. And he says, wow, the king has fed us well. I'm still fat around my heart. And then he dies. <laughs> <laughs> or someone who goes to uh, to kill um, someone who's uh, become fredlös, someone who's uh, okay to kill and uh, it won't yeah. be called murder uh, and uh, he gets uh, a, a, a spear thrown straight through his uh, through his stomach and he comes back to his friends and they say so was he home <laughs> and he says check that yourself but I know that his spear was home and then he dies exactly so these kind of last comments are very 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 often very famous from these uh, people it's uh, but uh, it's probably something about you know, I mean, a person's last word is kind of, it has some, I don't know, presence. It's, it tells something about the person, maybe, right. or the time. Right. Yeah. Definitely. And, uh, uh, well, yeah, it was, uh, and uh, in Heimskringla, you see a lot of examples yes. of that, by the way. There's one person who's deciding to do a, a scientific experiment when he's about to be executed. And he says, I'm holding a dagger in my hand here. And if when my if I'm still conscious when my head is chopped off, then I'll put the plunge the dagger into the ground. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he decides to do. He just meets uh, death with this kind of stoic anticipation. But does he manage? That's a question. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. It drops drops from his hand. So okay. there we have the first scientific evidence that uh, <laughs> that the the head is important for basic for for basic muscular action. I guess. Exactly. The, it's it's a good evidence, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so what yeah. I, but King, it kind of tells the story of how the Norwegian kingdom was made, but also going all the way back to um, like uh, mythology and uh, old religion figures like Odin and Tov and so on. That's uh, right. Yeah. The, the yeah. Ac according to. Uh, um, Heimskring, according to Snorri Sturluson, and we'll take as an ex we'll just uh, expect or just take it for uh, for true whether or not it is true that Snorri wrote this. Um, and according to Snorri, um, what uh, really happened was that Odin was a historical person that had a kingdom close to the Caspian Sea, and uh, was uh, driven from there by 
by Roman armies or saw that Roman armies would soon uh, be incurring or have incursions into his territory. And uh, because he was a man with prophetic vision, he was able to see that the future for his lineage was going to be up north. And so he uh, goes up north and uh, first conquers uh, in Russia and then in Germany. And then he goes to what is uh, modern-day uh, Denmark and uh, settles at uh, Odense, which was then called Odense, uh, now called Odense, and goes from there to Sweden uh, and uh, at um, uh, by close to Uppsala. And that's where he settles down and and uh, dies actually of illness and uh, Njord takes over after him and Frey takes over after him and then after them comes the lineage of uh, the Nor- Norwegian kings uh, is tracked from there so you can say that uh, the Heimskringla as a, um, uh, also it contains a kind of creation myth of how Norway was created in a way right Exactly, yeah. and uh, uh, for a lot of it, actually, at the very beginning, uh, takes place in Sweden uh, until uh, there's this one king that uh, is uh, some does so many terrible things, uh, called uh, in Ingeld, uh, uh, I believe Ingeld uh, Illrode. He uh, kills a lot of the petty kings that are subject to him, and because of that, he's driven out of Sweden, um, and his lineage moves into the forest between Norway and Sweden and then further uh, to the uh, Oslo Fjord area um, and uh, continues around that area until uh, the until the time of uh, Harald uh, Fairhair or Harald Hårfagra, who is the first king then to gather Norway and that's when the saga really takes or the story really takes off. Yeah, and we kind of go more into historical time to say it like that but uh, because uh, uh, you mentioned it also before that as a source you cannot this uh, especially the first parts of snow it's basically uh, myths that are it's not like historical facts when the saga moves on up towards snow's own time of course we can possibly rely a bit more on it as historical facts but we also as historians at least if you want to see it like that it's always a question of being critical to the source just to mention that but we are not going to go deep into those kind of discussions here today i think but (laughs) more look at it as a kind of rhetorical piece yeah exactly exactly because uh, that's the thing everyone writes history for a purpose right so um most of the the heimskringler covers uh which is saint olaf um and uh, his life uh, and then afterwards you have a selection of, uh, of petty kings, or not petty kings, but the kings that follow him and his lineage. Um, and But what you really see is that there is uh, an implicit argument that I find, at least, when I'm reading this as a rhetorician, uh, running through throughout the, the whole story. Um, and that is, uh, for one of the things, is that you do see a gradual... Um, accumulation of power you see uh, it c- uh, first uh, there are many small petty kings and they are gathered into one kingdom first by Harald uh, Hårfagre but without necessarily a whole lot of institutions uh, solidifying that uh, but then after after a while you have uh, this um, uh, accumulation of power uh, to the 
Norwegian monarch or the Norwegian state, if you call it, can call it that. Um, and as a result of that, you do have uh, this kind of more random violence, so these uh, plunderings and, um, and so on, uh, that are very common and very uh, frequent at the very beginning of the tale um, or of the story. And uh, it becomes less frequent uh, after a while and becomes uh, even to the point that uh, it's at the time of adding Skagge. Yeah? yeah, can you give us some concrete examples like yes. how Snow talks about this? Yeah, so the, I mean, uh, in early times, uh, you, you talk about that every, uh, each of these petty kings was almost expected to be raiding the other petty kingdoms in Norway, uh, as, as well as the other, uh, as well as uh, around the Baltics, um, uh, Sweden, Denmark, etc. Uh, but after a while, these, um, the relationships become uh, more organized. And so you have um, a king that rules over all of Sweden, a king that rules over all of Denmark, and kings that rule over all of Norway. And the violence is uh, mainly focused on their uh, power struggles. And uh, they generally leave the rest of the population in peace. Um, and so we have example an example here during the time of, um, uh, in Magnus Erlingsson's saga, uh, where it says, uh, where it talks about that the, during this time, Norwe the Norway's kingdom was in, uh, was flourishing and the farmers sat in great power and wealth and were uh, no longer used to uh, lack of peace or lack of freedom from uh, roving bands, is what they say. And if anyone was robbed or anyone was uh, stolen from, that was immediately talked a lot about and uh, seen as something very bad and something that, ne that was uh, quite uh, out of the ordinary. Um, whereas uh, the, this is at the uh, close to the end of the uh, more than uh, 800 pages of uh, Heimskringla. And at the beginning of this, uh, you see uh, that this is something that everyone does, even the good guys uh, in the story, you could say. Everyone does this. It's just expected that that's part of the way that these petty kings or these kings make their living. Actually, so, for example, Eirik Bluex, when he loses his kingdom, that's what he does. He becomes a Viking. He, he, um, he uh, essentially manages to keep his uh, kingdom or his kingsmen loyal to him and is able to give them gold and food through plundering. And that's expected and respected, right? Exactly. <coughs> so, so will you say that there is kind of a uh, what you are saying basically that Snorri kind of describe a development and uh, would you say that kind of the structure sometimes is this structure to describe this development into a more uh, unified or what I want to, uh, you can discuss the terminology probably but still mm -hmm. a kingdom is just a structure sometime, uh, sometimes overrun uh, the actions in the world, or, or are, is it deciding the, how he describes it, do you think? Well, I mean, I think there definitely is, uh, I mean, I think this is definitely a um, historical uh, fact. I, d I do think that these things uh, definitely, definitely happen, that this, uh, the, you know, there is a historical fact, for example, that the king becomes uh, more powerful 
than it used to be. That uh, instead of uh, having all these uh, a main king, but a lot of smaller subject kind of petty kings, you really have the king, and then it's his people and his people in all the areas of the country. They're all um, directly subject to him, and sometimes directly instated by him, right? Instead of just uh, being these petty kings that uh, pay taxes to him, but otherwise they rule as kings uh, as they used to. Uh, but there's also, uh, um, there's definitely a kind of a moral dimension to this, that uh, um, he does seem to take the side that side of the, of the kings. He talks about these prophetic dreams, for example, of the uh, mother of Harald Hårfagra, um, and that there is uh, this kind of destiny for Norway to become a gathered kingdom um, instead of being this uh, this uh, huge uh, accumulation of petty kingdoms, you could say. So uh, the famous... Uh, it, it is kind of an example of the... Uh, the winners right history in a right. way that uh, that kind of he takes the side of the what he considers the progress of actually forming the state exactly and a lot of uh, it says uh, it's uh, also said that the a lot of the um, historians after snoda and also the kings after snoda uh, had written his history used snoda as uh, part of their uh, claims to legitimacy uh, claims to why it was good and wise and correct for uh, a single ruler and a single kind of uh, bloodline, I guess you would say, to rule over this this vast, um, quite geographically um, hard to navigate, the disparate uh, country, right? Yeah, and in particularly in medieval, especially when you come into the like twelfth century and so on, and before that too, you know, you have the Nordic expansion. So I mean, the Norwegian kingdom looked pretty different than what it looks uh, today. It was the heartland, but you know it was all the Atlantic possessions too. Exactly, and it's one of the. It's an actually an interesting, um, um, you could say, um, paradox because obviously he's writing this as an Ice, Icelandic uh, citizen, right? So it actually is not at that time at least su uh, subject to the Norwegian king, mm. and yet uh, what he's uh, what he's implicitly arguing for, I guess, is uh, a kingdom, whereas uh, that is not the kind of uh, government that he, at the time that he is writing this, um, finds himself in, right? Um, so uh, it's said that uh, uh, there there may have been uh, people in Iceland that were not very happy about his position uh, initially as kind of uh, subject uh, to the king or one of the king's men that he was seen as uh, one of the king's representatives um, in Iceland. Uh, but later, obviously, it's the king that kills him, right? This, this same, uh, this same uh, sacred, uh, unifying, uh, monarchic force, right? That he's, uh, in, in some ways, arguing for in, in uh, Heimskringla, I would argue, uh, mm. is also what ends up killing him. That's interesting. That's interesting. Uh, kind of... Uh tragedy of history <laughs> luckily not the tragedy of being the uh, historians today most of the time though that we they don't usually get killed because of uh, well you should never say never, never, say places, never. you never know uh, actually history can be a very 
revolutionary force and of course well of course and that's uh, if you threatened by authorities also so if you just compare this for example to the flat yeah. book yeah uh, flat book it was written at the kind of the end of the norwegian kingly line you could say right it's at this point it was writ written originally um kind of uh, it intended to be um a uh, curriculum for this this young prince or this young heir to the Norwegian throne um, and uh, the writers of it, uh, according to the foreword at least, uh, were intending it as a gift to him and uh, as a implicit ab admonition to keep the independence of Norway at a time when Norway was under pressure and under th threat from a lot of foreign uh, foreign forces. Um, now, he never received this book, but it's kind of uh, enduring as this kind of, not national romantic, but nation-building in a certain way, kind of trying to show based through history and poetry um, and mythology the kind of the, the rich, uh, rich cultural basis for a Norway, right? Mm. Um, and so that one was, uh, again, another one that uh, bases itself also quite a bit on Heimskringla. Uh, but goes even further on in kind of building a Norwegian identity, um, going back not to o Odin but to Nur, the kind of the mythic uh, Jotun or a giant that uh, that is said to be the first one that settled Norway, that first one that was actually the ruler of all of Norway, and that when Harald Horfagre does this later, he's actually just repeating the feat that Nur did for Norrige. Right, Nordrike. Mm. But again, you have this creation mythology that is a part plays a part of this uh, medieval text, which uh, I think is quite fascinating. Like how they include it, and gradually it becomes more into more recent history, and so exactly. Uh, um, so there is not a clear divide in this text between what, like today, we would separate very strictly between mythology and history, and what is what, and try, you know. Um, people wrote history basically in medieval time they didn't do that exactly yeah. or you know perhaps they just didn't see that same uh division yeah. Uh, exactly yeah uh, that's much better the way you say it yeah mm -hmm. they didn't see it wasn't relevant basically right right it wasn't relevant for them another thing that you could see also um uh, rhetorically you could say is um as a theme throughout the book i would say is along with uh, all these themes of of course um the lures of power and uh, all these kind of uh, immortal uh, themes really of uh, of the difficulties of ruling and not becoming kind of a monster yourself um, which i think is very very interesting um the good he is presented in a dream he sees uh, saint olaf uh, at that time uh, he's ruling together with his uncle Harald um, and he sees a dream where St. Olaf says essentially that um, you have two choices now, either to make yourself the greatest kingdom that Norway has ever seen, but uh, so for the, the glory of Norway, but personally you will become, uh, you will have to do things that will make you unsavable essentially, that will make you a tyrant, make you a, a terrible person. Um, and I think hinted there is that he'll have to kill his uncle uh, in order to maintain the kingdom and then probably kill a lot of other people afterwards. Or 
you can join me um, and kind of give up the kingdom. And so when he dies later of illness, it's kind of seen that he he chose to follow Saint Olaf instead of becoming a monster. Fascinating. Oh, this thing with prophecies and dreams that plays a part. Also, again, something that a modern historian wouldn't include in a book <laughs> of history. <laughs> but right. how rhetorically does Nova use this uh, kind of? Uh, why why does it do it? What's the purpose of using this, mixing this into the Heimskringla? Uh, right, and uh, I mean, uh, you could talk rhetorically that. I told about before the the dream that uh, Harald Hortfagr's mother has, right? Ragnhild, I believe her name was, uh, she, where she dreams great dreams um, and uh, sees essentially this uh, uh, symbolic dream that's uh, similar to what you, you see in the Bible with, uh, for example, uh, Joseph in Egypt, etc., um, where she sees the future of Norway allegorically uh, portrayed in front of her uh, with the destiny of her son to become the first king of all of Norway and one of the strands of his hair being extra golden and it's uh, kind of interpreted in later times that that golden strand in her hair is Saint Olaf right, that's the kind of the, mm. the greatest king the or the most saintly king um, but uh, y- you really do see this kind. Of it, it makes history have this sort of determinism you could say and also a certain divine intervention uh where it's kind of like a lot of these things are happening but uh god or uh, higher forces or higher powers to a certain extent um are still directing the direction this is going in to certain to a certain extent um and so one of the themes that goes throughout times is also this kind of gradual uh, displacement of the uh, Odin worshippers and the Odin religion and the gradual superseding and victory of uh, Christianity. Um, and exactly. uh, with a special kind of, um, especially using as rhetorical devices, I'd say, um, the the fear and loathing to a certain extent of the practices of magic and of uh, human sacrifice. Mm. Can you tell us a bit more about this uh, theme about Christianity and uh, the struggle between Christianity and Old Norse religion, mythology? Yeah, so from what I was reading, um, you really see from the, from the very beginning, it describes how Odin teaches the people Said, which is the name for the Norse magic. Right, um, and that this is something that uh, he knew a lot about, and that uh, people then learned a lot about, but that men, f- men, interestingly enough, couldn't bring themselves to do because it was such a cowardly thing, or it was it it involved so much self degradation that it became the realm of women to do <laughs> to do magic. Uh, although there are quite a lot of uh, wizards, you could say, using this kind of magic, um, and it becomes connected later on there are no there are no rec- records in Heimskringla uh, about Odin ever uh, conducting human sacrifice uh, but one of the ones who does that is King Euna uh, who uh, lives to an extremely old age and he believes he can live 10 years longer for every one of his sons that he sacrifices so he sacrifices 10 sons 
in the end, or wants to sacrifice ten sons to Odin, and uh, in exchange he gets uh, for these human sacrifices he gets extra long life. Right, um, and uh, later it's uh, it's even uh, as recent as Olav Tryggvason's time. Uh, there are still human sacrifices being performed in at strategic times to win victories in battles. So um, in in one battle for the dominion of Norway, Håkon Jarl, who is the one who ruled Norway right before Olav Tryggvason, um, he sacrifices his son in the middle of a battle, uh, and uh, the gods, or the Norse gods, uh, answer with hailstorms that uh, destroy the enemy fleet, or the, or destroy ad- the enemy advance and leads to victory in that battle. Uh, what I think is interesting here is that he's not is not uh, portraying this again as Christianity versus, um, you know, uh, imagination uh, or just uh, empty uh, empty words. Uh, there seem to be actually two actual forces that are able to control nature that are kind of battling for the souls of the Norwegian people, right? So th- it's an actual uh, contest of two powers. It's not. It's not like Christianity versus uh, lies and deceit by itself. Uh, it is more kind of the Christian God versus the Norse gods to a certain extent. Those who are placated by human sacrifice and by using side. Exactly. That's and then Christianity comes into the picture. Right and. Uh, uh, even during that time, when Norway's kind of officially christened, there are a lot of kind of pockets of resistance, and there are a lot of people using, like, professing Christianity, but then still using some of the old magic. Uh, like uh, one, the one, one of the persons who kills uh, Saint Olaf at the Battle of Stiklestad uh, has this uh, reindeer skin coat that has this magic in it uh, from the uh, from the. Uh, the Sami population uh, and their magicians, that no axe or uh, sword can penetrate it. And so that's why when St. Olaf tries to hit him with his axe, he's not able to penetrate. So it's, to a certain extent, it has even more power than St. Olaf, right? This well. this magic. Um, but then gradually it gets displaced and in, in a series of kind of battles uh, but against the, the magicians, uh, Olaf Tryggvason... Uh, wins because the kind of Christian God intervenes. Um, he's uh, sailing towards this uh, fleet of magicians that are coming towards him, and this huge darkness, this huge thick mist, descends on the on the uh, Olaf Tryggvason's uh, fleet, um, and he's he's the one of the first kings that tries to kind of forcibly christen christen all of Norway, um, and he's going towards. But as he goes to war further towards this fleet, the mist dissipates, but it goes into the minds of <laughs> of these wizards. And so they're kind of standing in the middle of the sunshine and they can't see anything and they're they're lost and they're wandering about uh, because uh, God inter- intervened and kind of dr- drove their magic or turned their own magic against them. So uh, maybe uh, can you say that that uh, Christianity wins because basically God is a stronger God than the old Norse gods? Yeah. Or am I I wrong if I'm thinking like that? No, exactly. That's the way that Snorri presents it. Yeah, and he he presents it as kind of a battle between uh, evenly matched forces at times. 
like the yeah. it's uh, it's actually forces that are need to be battled with and uh, that where sometimes the contest can be close but that in the kind of in the end christianity is stronger um than the norse gods you could say so it's not like a, a fundamental difference in a way they are all kinds of gods it's just like who's the strongest one yeah to a certain yeah exactly and uh, you know uh brings back you know when the israelites uh, in the bible when they're portrayed going into the promised land the other gods are are seen as as real gods they're just not as strong as as jehovah right exactly exactly um, interesting very so interesting there's uh, uh, so you can actually see that that story repeats itself in a way in the uh, way snow presents it interesting i hadn't thought about that maybe no, no. yeah yeah maybe that's uh that maybe that was kind of a, a model you could say um and so again here right you you would say um, so there's definitely something that Snoida, in addition, kind of just just recording events, he's definitely doing something with the story, right? He's kind of making arguments for uh, the nature of reality to a certain extent, and also, but but again, like uh, being a devout the reality a, of a, a, a devout a devout Catholic, right? Uh, back in, in the at the time when when uh, Iceland is a Catholic uh, a Catholic uh, what do you call it? Uh, districts um diocese yeah yeah uh, under under leadership of the of the pope which you, you don't often think about that but you know Nor- norway and and iceland and all these areas were were catholic at that Definitely uh, during were. that time yeah until 15 uh, in norway 15 uh when denmark uh, and of course iceland 1536 uh, yeah yeah and there's, uh, a, there's this uh, i'd actually just to like to uh, point out this one one uh, specific story here, and it's actually not one of the most famous stories. It's in Magnus Erlingsson's saga, uh, but where you have like essentially a uh, two armies meeting, and one is very clearly kind of a remnant of the old or holds on to the old Norse magic, uh, and the other one uh, allies itself strongly and clearly with Christianity, right? Um, and uh, it's Erling. Uh, is uh, on the one side, Erling Skogge. Is that his name? Yeah, Erling Skogge. Um, and uh, he is kind of a protector for uh, Magnus Erlingsson, his son, uh, who's who has royal blood, and but uh, at this point he's just more like a protectorate for him, or a regent, you could say. Um, and um, the one he's fighting against is another uh, pretender to the throne, who's uh, Sigurd Jarl, Sigurd Earl. Um, and Sigurd will only attack at night time because he has been given uh, advice from a kind of old Norse wizard that if he attacks at night time and battles in the night, then he will be victorious. And so uh, instead of surprising him at night time, uh, w- which he has a chance to do when he discovers his location, Erling and his army decide to battle during the day. He says, like, well, they're trusting in the old Norse gods, they're trusting in magic. And we are trusting in the God, uh, the 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 true God, right? And so he gathers his men. They get ready to attack, and they even attack while they're singing, uh, uh, "Our Father, who art thou in heaven," uh, and "Kyrie uh, eleison." So, Lord, um, have have mercy on us. 
which you wouldn't think necessarily of as battle cries, right? But they, this is what no. they sing as they're marching across the river and into battle against uh, Sigurd, Sigurd Earl and his uh, his uh, uh, heathen army, you could say. Fascinating. So you have, yeah. uh, again, um, the kind of the, vi- the gradual victory of Christianity uh, over Odin worship uh, with kind of the special, uh, with which is especially seen uh, in the kind of in the um, attacks on human sacrifice and this old magic. Mm. So if we uh, starting maybe to sum up, it's kind of at least two important themes in this uh, in Heimskringla is the formation of a Norwegian state and uh, the victory of Christianity. Uh, and uh, so we can maybe say then that, which is not, of, I think many will agree, of course, that the two, when you evaluate it like this, it's to evaluate Heimskringla in the context of his own time, where these things are important things he thought to describe, yeah? Right. And uh, again, it's like, what is he trying to do here, right? Who did he think would be readers of this history? Uh, obviously, uh, the readers of his history at a time when Christianity has become uni- most mainly universal in uh, in Nordic in northern northern Europe. Um, he was writing to other Christians, right? And uh, viewing again our our victory as the the uh, the destined and the proper course of history, right? There's a moral dimension to it, uh, and uh, also legitimate legitimizing the rule of the Norwegian kings. And so exactly. it's uh, it's uh, conceivable that this was would be been uh, thought of as a gift to. Uh, Håkon Håkonsson, for example, or other um, Nor- Norwegian kings going forward, um, and thereby also obviously preserving his legacy, because uh, they would have interest of keeping this history rather than history that says, uh, look, uh, how we lost gradually lost our freedom to the monarchy, or look <laughs> how we, we lost our tradition and our history of the old Norse religion. Exactly, and these two stories about especially the kings and the state and the Christianity, they kind of merge in this story. Yeah, Right, exactly. So the king uh, derives his uh, right to rule to a ex- certain extent by being the protector and the promoter of Christianity in Norway. All right. Well, uh, thank you for the discussion. I think that's a good place to end, don't you? Yes, I think so. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, join us again on the uh, Writing History podcast, uh, where we discuss uh, ancient historiography and uh, history writers. Thank you very much.